All right, please turn with me to Genesis 18, 17 through 19. The title to our message this morning is The Global Blessing of Family Worship. Elders had decided um, this week that we kind of wanted to have a a last sermon of the year kind of focusing on uh, what we're going to be doing in 2024 and kind of give us a primer for that. So if you are single, if you are a young lady or a young man, this absolutely applies to you because you you need to know what you're aiming at. And if you're an older couple or an older single person, um, this message absolutely applies to you because uh, we live to help equip and serve other people. And so this is for everybody in the room, for everybody's ears. As we're about to read this text here in Genesis 18, we have the account where God visits Abraham on the very evening of uh, the evening before he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah um, with fire and brimstone. So strangely enough, it's in this context where the Lord speaks of family worship. So Genesis 18, starting in verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to hear your word once again. We confess that it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Lord, neither my words nor the ears of our hearers, Lord, can produce anything in us. We must have a spiritual encounter with you. And so please come, as you promised, that you would be with us until the end of this age. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Here on the evening of the evening before Sodom's destruction, we see that the Lord, Jehovah, visits. Abraham. And this appearance of the Lord here is none other than the second person in the Trinity. It's the Son of God himself. Uh, We know from the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 and 2, he appeared in the form of a man. He appeared with two other men, but they were ordinary angels, verse 22 and then chapter 19, verse 1. We know from systematic theology that this is not an appearance of the Father, because in John 1.18, we read that no one has ever seen God, the Father, but the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Christ, he has made him known. So it's this pre-incarnate Christ here who is speaking to Abraham. It's the Son who is announcing this destruction of the two cities in the valley. It's Jesus Christ, our mediator, our prophet, priest, and king, who is teaching us about family worship. In verse 17 here, we see him deliberating on whether or not he should reveal his plans to Abraham. Look at verse 17. The Lord said, 
shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then he gives two immediate reasons why he decides to tell Abraham of this frightening judgment. The first reason in verse 18, the Lord will tell him is because he is in covenant with Abraham. He has made great promises to him. God tells his plans to his covenant people. This is the same truth in the New Testament. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. These sodomites were living carelessly and wickedly and were blind to their destruction, but God told Abraham of their fate beforehand. And so it is with Christians today. God has told us what his judgments are. He's revealed these things in his word um, well before he ever pours them out on the world. Um, It's a peculiar privilege of belonging to him. Psalm 25, 14, it says, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. Now, the second reason the Lord tells Abraham of Sodom's destruction is in verse 19. This is our passage, is so that he can teach his children. Now, in the chronology here, Isaac is not even born. But God wanted, to know, God wanted Isaac to know about this event after the fact. This knowledge of Sodom's destruction was not to die with Abraham, but he was to bear witness of these judgments of God to his children and to his future posterity. So that brings us to our theme this morning, which is family worship. All parents, just like Abraham, have a duty before God to lead their family in the worship of the triune God. As Abraham Kuyper was keen to say, we're to bring our family to the family altar. Together, we're to come into the presence of God to celebrate the glory of God and to teach all of our children the ways of God. So from verse 19, we're going to look at seven elements of family worship. The first one is that family worship is an act of sovereign grace. Family worship is an act of sovereign grace. Look at verse 19. The Lord says to Abraham here, for I have chosen him. Abraham was chosen by God. He was elected by sovereign grace to be redeemed, to be rescued from the wrath to come, to be brought back into paradise with God. And this is true of every single Christian. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that he chose us In him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And one of the grand purposes of election is that we that we might lead our children in the worship of the living God. This is what God links election to for Abraham. In verse 19, look at it again. For I have chosen him that, that's a purpose statement. He may command his children. God chose Abraham. Why? For what reason? For what purpose? So that he could bring his children into the presence of God. Loved ones. I mean, 
You, you go to a Calvinistic church, and we talk about this, the doctrines of grace and how God saved us according to his free grace, nothing in us. And so sometimes we ask, well, what, what purpose then? What, what reason did God choose us? Well, here's one reason right here in the passage. He chose us so that we could worship God with our children. God has elected us for family worship. Now, on one level, every single family already worships. Worship is what we would call an inescapable concept. It's not whether your family worships God, but which God does your family worship. Kuiper again says here that, quote, scholars and others are familiar with the Lars and the Penates as the household gods in Roman history. So it is a well-known fact of history that some form of idol worship or worship of the spirits of the dead or some fetish could be found at the center of the family in almost every Asian nation, end quote. Family worship is inescapable. Uh, The families of Sodom had some form of family worship. They worshiped their own sinful passions, Jude 1.7 says. Whatever your family lives for is your God. We have to live for something. Every family has some purpose for existence, and so therefore every family worships. Over Christmas, I spoke with this woman who had shared in our family worship with us over a meal. And she was um, married, and she had two children under the age of 10. And after we got done, she cornered me in the kitchen, and she, she said to me that her children had never experienced that before. They never had read, her, her and her husband had never read Scripture with them. Her and her husband had never prayed with them. Her and her husband had never sung gospel truths with them. And she was telling this, my heart just sunk in my chest. They didn't know what prayer was. They didn't know who God was. They didn't know that music exists for the sole purpose of bringing glory to God. God in his own wise counsel had thus far had withheld his grace from that particular family. Oh, dear congregation, do you see the unspeakable privilege it is to be chosen by the grace of God? This verse here in verse 19 speaks of your privilege. God says to every one of you, for I've chosen you that you may command your children to come to me. The king of heaven gives you and me admittance into his presence chamber with our families. And not every family has that privilege. Oh my goodness, some families are perishing in Sodom. How many millions of children since the beginning of the world have never seen a Bible, have never heard the gospel, have never sung a song to Jesus? But we are not in that lot. We are not in that lot, not because of luck, not because of blind chance, but because of sovereign grace, because God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works 
that we have done in righteousness, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 2 Timothy 2.9. So that's our first point, that, that family worship is an act of sovereign grace. It's an act of sovereign grace. Secondly, family worship is the duty of every father. It's the duty of every father. Who did Christ make responsible to lead Abraham's family in worship? Well, Abraham himself. Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him. Abraham was called to lead his family in worship, not because he was the patriarch of all Israel, which he was, but simply because he was the husband and father of his family. Whenever Abraham moved his family from one location to another, um, the very first thing he did was he established an altar to worship God. You can see this in Genesis 12.7 and Genesis 13.4. God has given husbands and fathers the duty and the obligation to lead their family in worship. We see this all over Scripture. It was Joshua who said, but as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord, Joshua 24, 15. It was Jacob who led his family in worship. Genesis 35, 2, he tells his family, put away your foreign gods that are among you. Job led his family in worship. That's how the book of Job begins. In, verse one, verse five, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, it says that he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Augustine rightly notes that um, the master of the family performs the duty of a churchman or bishop within his house. And we need to qualify this, don't we? For a moment, um, if there is no husband, or if the husband is an unbeliever, or if the husband is away at work, um, then family worship should be conducted by the mother. One of the greatest pastors of the New Testament, Timothy, who was Paul's protege, he was not led by his father in worship. He was led by his grandmother, um, Lois and his mother, Eunice, 2 Timothy 1.5. And from a very early age, 2 Timothy uh, 3.15 says that he was taught the scriptures. And these scriptures, through his grandmother and his mother, led him to salvation in Christ. And he became a pastor. Husbands ought to lead, but if that can't happen for the reasons mentioned, then the responsibility falls on the mother. Now, that being said, I want to address men, but just know that these principles apply to women who are the heads of their home. So there are several objections that come um, that can be raised against family worship. First one is that a father might say, well, my family is broken, and so family worship is a lost cause. My family is broken, and so family worship is a lost cause. Abraham's family was super broken. I doubt that your family looked like Abraham's. He had a couple wives, several concubines. He had uh, one of his sons was a son born of the flesh who persecuted his other son, Isaac, who was a son of the promise, Galatians 4.29. What do you think the solution is to broken families? 
daily family worship. That's the solution. Second, second objection, a father might say, well, I'm not equipped to lead in family worship. I'm not equipped to lead in family worship. Well, good news. Family worship doesn't depend on the power of any man. Uh, Family worship depends upon the power, the living power of the word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that can go to the very thoughts of the soul, that can read hearts. It doesn't depend upon your power. It depends upon the power of the word. Thirdly, a father might say, well, I don't have time. I don't have time. When we have to give an account to God for our lives, I wonder if God will accept that excuse. God, I didn't have enough time to lead the children that you gave me to worship you. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Think about that for a second. If it's true that failing to provide for our family physically is worse than being an unbeliever, how much more so is it true to fail to provide for them spiritually? The most, listen, our, our children's bodies will die but their souls will never die. They will live forever and ever and ever. The most vital and significant and important and meaningful and impactful activity that fathers can ever do for their family is daily family worship. That's our second point, that family worship is the duty of every father. Thirdly, Family worship is for the sake of future generations. Family worship is for the sake of future generations. Family worship is not just for the sake of our own children. Look again at verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him. The household after him is to keep in view, meaning his future descendants yet to be born. John Calvin says that these words after him mean, quote, that we must not only take care of our own families to govern them duly while we live, but that we must give diligence in order that the truth of God, which is eternal, may live and flourish after our death, and that thus, when we are dead, a holy course of living may survive and remain, end quote. In this charge, God had Abraham's great-great-great-great-grandchildren in view to a thousand generations. And if you're a child of Abraham by faith, he had you in view. Psalm 105, 8 and 9 says, He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham. So we approach this idea of family worship. God wants us to think Covenantally, he wants us to think multi-generationally as we approach this topic. I just learned this this week. Um, some of you may know that I kind of like Jonathan Edwards. Um, he, 
got unjustly fired from his congregation in Northampton in 1750. Um, and in his last sermon, called his farewell sermon, he thought family worship was so important that he included it in his final sermon. He said this in that sermon, quote, one thing that greatly concerns you as you would be a happy people is the maintaining of family order. Every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his rules. And family education, or family worship, and order are some of the chief means of grace. If these fail, all other means are likely to prove ineffectual. Just real quick here. If we bring our, our, our children to a gospel-preaching church, but then the other six days a week, we don't engage in them with worship at all, which one do you think will have the greater influence? It's a, it's a war of attrition. But Edward says, but if these are duly maintained, the raising of our children the Lord, all the means of grace will likely to prosper and be successful. Now, Edwards and his wife, Sarah, carefully trained up their children in the Lord. Family worship was at the center of their home. Everything orbited around it, and their descendants greatly prospered as a result. According to A.E. Winship, he wrote a book called A Study in Education and Heredity, uh, 1900. The direct descendants of Jonathan Edwards and Sarah include these. One U.S. vice president three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. You contrast that with a man named Max Jukes. Max Jukes was a contemporary of Edwards. He was a profane man. He was a hard drinker. There was no family worship in the Jukes' home. No love for the Lord. And his descendants suffered greatly. In 1877, 150 years after his birth, there were 42 inmates in the New York prison system, all of whom were direct descendants of Jukes. Further research revealed that Jukes' offspring included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 50 women of debauchery, 130 other convicts, 310 paupers who combined spent 2,300 years in poorhouses and 400 physically wrecked by indulgent living. Dear congregation, all of us have been shaped negatively or positively by the homes that we were raised in. All of us. But here's the question. How are you shaping the kids in your home? What legacy will you leave your, your grandsons and your granddaughters and your great-great-great-grandchildren? Will generations rise up many years from now and call you blessed? Don't mishear me. God has to give us grace even in the attendance of these means in order for them to be effective. Uh, family worship isn't an automatic thing. It doesn't automatically produce converts. 
But these are the means that God has prescribed. Are we using those means? So that's our third point, that family worship is for the sake of future generations. Fourthly, family worship is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. Look at verse 19 again. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. To keep means to guard. The way here is something akin to a path. So Abraham was commanded to guard the the path of the Lord from any intruders, just like a soldier is required to guard his station from all enemy combatants. So fathers and husbands are to guard their families from anything that would seek to seduce them away from God and his glory. Why do families exist? What's the purpose of families? Or we could say, what is the chief end of families? Chief end of families is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Family worship keeps the family focused on God. But we do have to be aware of man-centered worship versus God-centered worship. Kuiper speaks of two different levels of, of family worship here. He says this, quote, On the lowest level, the real goal that people have is the pursuit of a blessing, assistance, and salvation. They bring their sacrifices and offer their worship as the means to achieve that goal. But on the second, much higher level, we find a religion that is from the heart and that seeks to honor God and worship Him. And the blessings that follow here are the result of the most intimate religion. So that lower level is man-centered and that higher level is God-centered. The lower level worships God to get his blessings and the higher level worships God to get God because God is the blessing. God is the prize. He is our crown. He's our inheritance. He's our diadem. He's everything. On the lower level, it's God who has to serve the family. On the higher level, the family places itself in the service of God. The lower level is not keeping the way of the Lord, as verse 19 says, and the higher level is. All that to say, family worship is, is not about checkmarking a box. Um, and I admit, loved ones, that I have failed at this countless times. I've drugged my family to the table because I knew that we have to do family worship tonight. And whether you like it or not, we're going to worship God. Um, I've sat down in a hurried manner before. Well, let's just get through this real quick because I have other more important things that I need to attend to. I deeply regret this. I'm a sinful man. As, as you're sitting here, I can hear the quietness in the room and the conviction in the room. I'm a sinful man just like you. I'm just like Paul. Paul said, I don't do the things I want to do. And the things I hate, that is what I do. But do you know what? 
even when I've come to family worship with a wrong heart, God has blessed it so many times. I've come with a man-centered spirit, and God puts himself back in the center again. Isn't that what church is like? You, you, you have six days of just living oftentimes for yourself and your focus is wrong and then you come back into this room and you hear the word of God and you remember, I don't exist for myself. I exist for God. That's what family worship is for. The very reason why we need it is for this very thing. It reminds us that life is not about us. Life is about the triune God. It's about the all-sufficient one. It's about the Alpha and the Omega. It's about the one who upholds everything by the word, by the power of his word. It's about the one who works all things together for the good of those who love him. Family worship reminds us that God and his great glory is why we exist. It reminds us of why happiness exists. It reminds us of why peace and joy in the Holy Spirit exist. That's our fourth point. The family worship is for the glory of God. Fifthly, and I changed this point. I just changed two words on it. Family worship is for equipping our children for covenant obedience. I had the word, the phrase good works there, and that's a good phrase. Uh, the Bible uses it in Ephesians 2.10, but Covenant obedience includes good works, and it includes so much more. Look again at verse 19. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. By doing righteousness and justice. And I understand those two words to summarize the greatest commandments, to do Righteousness means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and might. And to do justice is to love our neighbor as ourself. Here's the question. Why did God require Abraham's children to do these things? It's clear why he required it of Abraham. He chose him. He entered into covenant with him. Why did he require his children to do these things? And you might say, well, because all men are required to do these things. Well, amen to that. But it's especially required of Abraham's children because they also belong to the covenant. Look back with me at chapter 17, verse 7. Just one chapter. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God covenanted with Abraham's children just as much as he has covenanted with Abraham. And therefore his children were likewise to obey the terms of the covenant. Now, it's no different with us today. Our children are covenant children. And perhaps that thought is new to you. But I would say that all of us already operate like that in the civil sphere. 
Our children, think of this, our children are American citizens simply because they are our children. They didn't have to take special classes. They didn't have to swear an oath and put their hand on a Bible to become a citizen. They were born citizens. They have a covenant relationship with these United States by birth. And likewise, the children of believers, even in the New Testament, belong to the covenant simply because they were born to us. This is what Peter says in his first sermon in the New Testament, Acts 2.39, this promise is for you and for your children. Now, all that to say, family worship is designed especially to declare those covenant obligations to our children. Now, before you get ahead of me here, what's the first covenant obligation? To believe. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted to him to righteousness. We have to declare every covenant obligation to our children. The laws of our homes must be the laws of God. Our children must be taught over and over and over again that they cannot live however they please. Um, this was the poison that, was, that they were born into the world with, that Satan gave them. Remember, Satan's first lie was what? You can be your own God, Genesis 3, 5. As we open God's word to them in family worship, we're laying out what's not only required of them, but what's required of ourselves. You see, family worship is not just for our children, it's for all of us. Everyone in a covenant home is under the, the requirements of the covenant. So husbands and fathers, brothers, were reminded that every time we open up God's word as the prophet, priest, and king of our home, we're reminded that we must do righteousness and justice in how we lead and how we love. Mothers and, and wives, you're reminded as your husband's helper to do righteousness and justice in how you submit and follow. Children, boys and girls, you're reminded that your parents' God is your God and that you're required to do justice and righteousness in your honoring and your obeying. Kuiper says here that at the family altar... Christ rules over the family as king. And if you say here, well, that's putting the cart before the horse. We're not saved by law keeping. We're saved uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. You can never say that enough. Here's the question. How are our covenant children taught their need for Jesus Christ? Through the law. Galatians 3.24 says, Wherever, uh, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Luther was keen on saying that the law is like the slave master that whips us, that shows us our faults, that brings us in a desperate need to Christ. If our children don't hear the law, they'll never hear the need for Christ. That's our fifth point, that faith family worship is for equipping our children for covenant obedience. Sixthly, family worship is to protect our children from sin. 
There's another reason that Abraham was taught to uh, teach his children righteousness and justice in verse 19. Remember that Sodom and Gomorrah was about to be destroyed. And Christ, he deliberated out loud in verse 17, shall I hide this from Abraham? Or should I tell him about it? And he resolves to tell him because he wanted Abraham to tell his children. Look at chapter 19, verse 24. Look at how terrible this judgment was. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And then the end of verse 28 says, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Sodom is a type of hell. That's precisely what Jude chapter 1 verse 7 says, that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. There's a fallacy in our thinking if we hold that hell and judgment are only doctrines for the lost. Hell and judgment are doctrines also for the church. Um, Calvin says here, those interpreters are infatuated and perverse who contend that faith is overturned if consciences are alarmed. He's saying, if we alarm consciences too much, then we're going to shake people right out of their faith. He says, these things subdue our children in the fear of God so that they would flee to Christ in faith. God's judgment is not something to to run away from. If it was something that was bad, God wouldn't have put it in the word. He put it in the word and he holds it right out in front of us so that he would brought under the holy and reverent fear of God. God wants us to tell these things to our children. These are the things that happen um, to those who refuse to come to Christ. Children, boys and girls, God wants you to know that there were families in Sodom, families with boys and girls who perished in that fire, who came under the judgment of God. That's a frightening thing. Is that not scary? Is that not terrifying? Why would God tell you that? So that you would flee to Christ alone for salvation, so that you would hope in nothing else, so that you would hold on to the Lord of the covenant and say, Christ, save me. Families exist to to worship and glorify God. What should God do with those families that serve the devil? In Jeremiah 10, 25, the prophet says, pour out your wrath on those families who do not call upon your name. Dear congregation, we must remember the examples from Scripture. Eli, the, the priest, he did not restrain his children from sin. And as a result, 1 Samuel 
They perished, his sons did, and Eli's whole family line came under the curse of God. Puritan Richard Mather, he comes up with this imaginary conversation that children have with their parents on the day of judgment who neglected their training, who never taught them the ways of the Lord. God forbid that this be anyone in our congregation. Listen to what these children say. All this we have to suffer is through you. You should have taught us the things of God, and you did not. Woe unto us that we had such carnal and careless parents. Woe unto you that had no more compassion and pity to prevent the everlasting misery of your own children. Now, loved ones, perhaps you feel your failures here. I feel my failures here. This is a heavy sermon. What should you do? Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the good news about repentance, that we confess our sins, and we confess our sins to Christ, we confess our sins to our children, and we believe that the blood of Christ even cleanses us from this sin. This is what John says in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if you do sin... We have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ absorbs all of that wrath that you and I deserve for failing on this point. That's good news. That's good news. That helps us to rise up. That helps us to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind, and then it's a change of course. Okay, fine, you failed on this. Confess those sins to Christ and then change course. Make this your New Year's resolution. Make it your life resolution that you will bring your children to Christ around the table, that you will bring them to your God and their God, that you will bring them to the only one that can save them from their sin and deliver them from the wrath to come. That's our sixth point, that family worship is to protect our children from sin, to protect our children from the wrath of God. Seventhly, family worship is a principal means of bringing blessing to the nations. A principal means of bringing blessing to the nations. Look how verse 19 ends. This, for me, was the most surprising thing of this, this study. Christ says, I've chosen Abraham to lead his family in worship, end of verse 19, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Family worship comes with a promise, the most amazing promise. What did God promise Abraham? Look at verse 18. That the end of verse 18, that all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. The effect of families worshiping the triune God together around the family altar is blessing to the nations. That's the effect of it. Blessing to the nations. Family worship shapes the world. This is not one of those moments where the pastor is engaging in hyperbole. It's right here in the passage. Do this so that these promises that I made to Abraham would come to pass. 
Family worship is not some trifle. It's the means of global blessing. Think of it, loved ones. What is a, what is a human body made up of? Cells, right? And cells are uh, the basic building blocks of our body. Families are the cells of nations. And as those cells are made healthy, just avoid seed oils and you'll be perfect with this. As those cells are made healthy, the family is made healthy. And the nation is made healthy. Now certainly, Abraham brought his household uh, to the worship of the Lord, and God did what he promised. We can actually already see the effects of this promise taking place. There are worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ all over the world. I, I never get tired of saying this. We live in Boise, Idaho. We're on the other side of the planet from Jerusalem. There are worshipers here. There are Jesus, Jesus worshipers in America, in Canada, in Mexico, Brazil, Zambia, Australia, Nigeria, China, England, Russia, all over the world. Why? Because God has kept his promise. How much more blessing is God still ready to pour out? This promise hasn't expired. So here's our charge, loved ones. Parents, fathers, lead your family in worship. If, you're, if, if you only have a wife, lead your wife in worship. You are the patriarch of the family. Um, perhaps you're unsure how to do this. Okay, here's a four-point liturgy on how to do family worship from, from Scott Brown in his book, A Theology of the Family. So point one, simply open up your Bible and read it to your family. Simply open up your Bible and read it to your family. Charles Spurgeon said that the word of God is like a lion in a cage. All you need to do is open up the cage. It is the living and active word of God. Open up the Bible and read it to your family. Point two, after you've read it, ask your family to share those spiritual truths that stood out to them. Ask your family to share those spiritual truths that stood out to them. Hebrews 4.12 says that the living word of God discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. They're, those little children in your family, they feel that their hearts are being read by the word of God. Draw that out of them. Three, have your family earnestly pray for one another, making requests of God for his favor, for family, for church, for community, for nation and the world, and cry out for the souls of the lost. Go around in a circle. How would you like us to pray for you today? Have each other pray for one another, but don't just keep it for the prayer requests of the family. Pray for your church, pray for your nation, pray for the world, pray for the lost. Point four, sing together as a family. Sing together as a family. Maybe some of you are saying, but you don't know how I sing. We have so many resources today that are amazing. Pull up YouTube. Play a hymn. Pull the lyrics up on the screen. Sing together. Uh, Matthew Henry says here, quote, They that pray in the family do well. They that pray and read the scriptures do better. 
but they that pray and read and sing do best of all. Loved ones, God's blessing is on this. It's right in the passage. His promise is on this. There's nothing more important that you can do with your family than bring them to Christ daily. Don't just wait for the Sabbath to bring them to Christ. Bring them to Christ every day. So remember those seven points that that we have learned. Number one, family worship is an act of sovereign grace. We worship God, not because of anything in us, but because God chose us from before the foundation of the world. Point two, family worship is the duty of every father. There is a leader in the home, and God has made the father that leader. Fathers, lead your families. Three, family worship is for the sake of future generations. It's not just for our own family. It's for generations to come. Four, family worship is for the glory of God. You will rediscover every day why you exist in family worship. You exist for something bigger than yourself. Five, family worship is for equipping our children for covenant obedience. As we teach them what God requires of them, it is the schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. Sixth, family worship is to protect our children from sin. We're to bring out before them what judgments await for those who do not worship him. And seventh, family worship is a principal means of bringing blessing to the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage to Abraham, our father of the faith. We thank you that we are believers here today, either because our own fathers and mothers led us in worship or in spite of it. But regardless, Lord, we are here. We ask, God, that you would give us the strength to to lead our families. if, If we're a single woman, A young single woman, Lord, help us to realize what kind of husband we should marry. If we're a young single man, Lord, help us to to realize what type of husband we need to be. If we're grandparents or if we are older folks that have messed this up, Lord, help us to, to remember that the gospel of grace means that your son has forgiven us from all sin and that we can be cleansed and we can be washed and that we can dedicate the rest of our life, Lord, to pursuing this great grace that you have given us. So Lord, strengthen our church. Help us to do church in our homes and not just once a week. We thank you for this grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.